You're listening to The Bible for Normal People, the only God-ordained podcast on the internet. Serious talk about the sacred book. I'm Pete Enns. And I'm Jared Bias. Hey everybody, Pete here. Welcome to another episode of The Bible for Normal People. And our topic today is, what does the Bible have to say about politics, American or otherwise? So here's the quick answer. Uh, Nothing, not a remote thing. And I say that because this politics, if we want to call it, the government issues of the biblical world are very, very different than ours today. You have a monarchy and a divine monarchy, a theocracy, technically speaking. And it's hard to sort of bring that world into ours immediately. And for example, you know, there's a passage in Second Chronicles 7.14 that a lot of people cite, if my people who are called by my name humble themselves, pray, seek my face, and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. And very often this is used in at least the American political system, which is where I'm going to be spending my time here. It's used as sort of a proof text like, oh, wow, look, America, humble yourselves and God will bless the land. And, you know, in Chronicles, the the topic is very different. It's about a coming Messiah to rule the people and to give them their sense of independence amid Persians and then Greeks and then Romans. And it's, you know, to simply transfer this over into our moment in time, I think, is a really a pretty gross misunderstanding of how that passage functions in Scripture. And if you want to apply it to anything, apply it to the church. Don't apply it to a another geopolitical entity that maybe is uh, claiming God's special blessing when that might not be the case. Well, it's that time, folks. It's time for us to talk about microdosing. Microdose gummies deliver perfect entry-level doses of THC that help you feel just the right amount of good. Microdosing can help you get into a relaxed, focused zone easier and stay there longer. It has benefits for workout recovery, sleep, anxiety relief, boosting creativity, and even pain relief. You know, Jared, I have a really good friend of mine who saw that I was taking microdose gummies and she said, can I try some? And so I gave her some of the sativa strand and she said it has made such a difference for her at work and just in general, just feeling more alert and more focused. And it's quite amazing. So get 30% off your first order plus free shipping today at microdose.com. Promo code NORMALPEOPLE. That's one word. It's available nationwide. That's microdose.com. Promo code NORMALPEOPLE for 30% off and free shipping. Microdose.com. Promo code NORMALPEOPLE. Anyway, that's, that's more of an opinion there. But you know, I don't think the Bible has much to say directly. But I do think indirectly the Bible is really interesting. And there are can I say, lessons or pointers in the biblical witness to perhaps a Christian posture towards political systems, again, whether American or otherwise, I'm going to limit myself to the American scene, because that's what I am. And let me get right to the punchline here. What I think is a good posture for Christians to maintain. I think in our current political system, It's a good idea for Christians to be either bipartisan or nonpartisan independent. I don't think you have to be, but I think it's a good idea. I I don't think aligning ideologically with any system is a good idea because it just causes belligerence and polarization. And I think the Christian role is more to be not neutral, but to 
to call the powers to account according to the biblical prophetic tradition and not feel like there's one party or the other that's going to implement the will of God better than others. This has been tried before in the history of the church, and it usually turns out being pretty ugly. So that's, that's my opinion. I, I'm assuming people out there are going to disagree with me vigorously. You know, what about this thing that Republicans say or this thing that Democrats say? You know, what are you going to do about that? Well, I, I could disagree with them. That's the beauty of being an independent you can think about these issues without party loyalty. And as simplistic and Sunday schoolish as it might sound, I think our loyalty is to the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven, which doesn't always have clear rules of what to do, but it's still an attitude. It's something to strive for and to reach for and to be that prophetic voice that calls all sides into account when need be. So that's sort of where I'm coming from. But what I really like to do today is not to talk about my little opinions. I just want you to know where this ends up. But I want to look at the biblical story a bit to see what we can glean from that about, let's say in the Bible, God's attitude towards government in general. And there it gets pretty interesting and diverse and ambiguous, which is one of the points I want to make. There aren't texts to go to that prove how Christians should have, what kind of relationship Christians should have to the government. So, let's, let's talk about some pros and some cons concerning the Bible and kingship. And I want to look at the Old Testament first, then move to the New Testament a bit, and then draw a couple of conclusions. All right? So, and again, I realize this is sort of a, a dicey, potentially conflict-producing podcast. And on one level, I don't mind that at all. On the other level, my point here is not to divide, but it's to give at least one person's perspective on how the Bible actually does engage us in the political realm, which is the realm of human discourse and human government, which we can't escape, or you can't run away from it. Okay, so a few things. First, you know, there's, there's a lot of positive stuff that the Bible says about kingship. And some of these passages are, are pretty familiar, but for example, I'm looking at Judges 21-25 and this refrain that happens, I think, three times in Judges. In those days, there was no king in Israel. All the people did what was right in their own eyes. This is an advertisement for the need for kingship. And it is like so much of the Old Testament that's pro-kingship. It's probably pro-David. There's a lot in Judges that leans towards the premacy of David and the Davidic line, as opposed to the line of Saul. So you could call judges a little bit of political propaganda, but you need a king to keep us in check. And remember that passage, because that's really, really important as we uh, get to some other passages in the Bible that seem to take a different perspective. So kingship is something that maybe God seems to like, or at least the author of Judges likes, and it's a good thing. Uh, a couple of Psalms, Psalm 45, 6, your throne, O God, endures forever. Your royal scepter is a scepter of equity. And it's likely the case that I'm, I'm simply citing here the New Revised Standard Version, but the NRSV also has a note, as do other Bibles, that it's probably not your throne, O God, but your throne is of God. It endures forever and ever. It's talking about the king. So this is, again, this royal thing that has a stamp of divine approval on it. Your royal scepter is a scepter of equity. You, you love righteousness and hate wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you 
with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. Right? So now it's talking, it's clearly talking to this king and saying, therefore, God, your God has anointed you. See, kingship is something that God seems to be in favor of in some of the Psalms, which are appropriately labeled in modern scholarship, royal Psalms. There, there is a whole Psalmic tradition of propping up the king and elevating the king and saying how wonderful kingship is. And it's from God. Uh, psalm 2 is, is really, I think, sort of the primo psalm, royal psalm passages. And, and picking it up in verse 7, we read, I will tell of the decree of the Lord. He said to me. Okay, now this is, again, the king talking. This is, you know, in our language, we say this is like a coronation psalm. This is about the, the, someone becoming a king. It seems to be maybe even a ceremony a liturgy for a ceremony of someone becoming king. And scholars agree, this makes sense to me too, that this is either about David specifically or perhaps more likely the Davidic line. Okay, it's pro-kingship, but not just random kings, a Davidic line kingship, right? So the psalm says, I will tell of the decree of the Lord. He said to me, God said to me, the king, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Now, we know that language from the New Testament and Jesus being the Son of God, being begotten by God. But in Old Testament language, and also in ancient language, ancient Near Eastern language in general, royal language and Son of God language are, well, they're very similar. Son of God language is royal language. And we continue in the psalm, Ask of me, King, ask of me, God, and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession, and you shall break them with a rod of iron, and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. See, this is pretty positive. I think we can agree here. Kingship, it assumes and celebrates the positive notion and the reality of kingship. And a couple more. There's Deuteronomy 17, 14 and, and following. You know, when you have come into the land that the Lord your God is giving you, right? When you come into the land of Canaan after the wilderness period, after the Exodus, and have taken possession of it and settled in it. And you say, I will set a king over me like all the nations that are around me. Remember that passage too, folks. You may indeed set over you a king. This is what God says through Moses. You may indeed set over you a king whom the Lord your God will choose. The thing is that there are stipulations. Kingship itself is fine. However, here are the stipulations. It can't be a foreigner. It's got to be from your own people. The king can't have many horses. He can't uh, return you to Egypt when times get rough. You stay in the land. This is your land. He can't have many wives. He can't have a lot of silver and gold. And you can't have a lot of horses, I said already, but chariots as well. And he has to read in the law all the days of his life, neither exalting himself above other members of the community nor turning aside from the commandment. So, this is, again, very positive, the evaluation here of kingship in Deuteronomy 17. It assumes its validity. It doesn't have to be argued. It's just, it's a good thing. God's in favor of it. But just be careful that, you know, you follow these regulations and stipulations. It could turn out pretty ugly. Also, just, you know, the books of First and Second Samuel are... Very interested in kingship, you know, and the importance of kingship and Samuel anointing a king and anointing David 
And David is is chosen specifically by God, right? Samuel goes to Bethlehem to anoint a king because Saul's not working out. It's not that kingship is bad in and of itself. It's that the kind of king is bad. And so God anoints, well, Samuel anoints David, the youngest of Jesse's sons. He goes from the oldest to the youngest. It should be the oldest, but it goes down all the way down. And there's no one who's acceptable to God. And Samuel says, do you have anybody else? And Jesse says, well, there's David. He's out in the field someplace. Yeah, bring him in. Well, he's the guy. You know, the young one, the unexpected one is the king. And this is the one that that God will mold to be after his own heart, right? So that's the idea. It's very positive about kingship. Kingship is not a bad thing. It's a very, very positive thing. And then, you know, in 2 Samuel, this is when David does become king. And you know, we read here another one of these statements that's just very, very positive about kingship. In fact, in my opinion, this is one of the centerpieces of the entire Old Testament for understanding the theology of the Old Testament. And that's in 2 Samuel 7, like starting around verse 12. God says, well, Nathan, the prophet, speaking for God, says to David, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your ancestors, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come forth from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He's talking about Solomon. He shall build a house for my name. He, he will build a temple and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Which in Old Testament talk really just means a very, very long time. It doesn't mean like in the linear Greek time, literally into eternity. It just means for a very, very long time. It's going to be a rock solid kingship that has an enduring legacy, that I, God, will be a father to him, and he shall be my son. You see, again, son language for kingship, which is very positive. When he commits iniquity, which Solomon does, I will punish him with a rod such as mortals use, with blows inflicted by human beings. But I will not take my steadfast love from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. Your house, now he's speaking to David, your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. That's verse 16. This promise of an enduring forever legacy of David is such an important piece of Old Testament theology that if we got into this, we'd be here for seven hours. We don't need to do that. I'm only focusing on one thing here, that this idea of kingship, specifically Davidic kingship, is very, very positive. And this continues in the book of Chronicles, which is the last thing that really should be in the Old Testament. It's one of the later books written, and it's a post-exilic take on Israel's entire history. It's really a rewriting of First and Second Samuel and First and Second Kings, but from the much later perspective. And others have called Chronicles like the most messianic book in the Old Testament. And I think that's true in the sense that this is a very much pro-future king, someone who will come, not Jesus, but a king, just in the line of David who's going to come and lead us in fidelity of worship, of temple worship, and lead us in holiness and righteousness, but also be our leader and our protector and someone who will through whom God will once again bless Israel, just like in the days of David. And that's why the story of David is told without any of the negatives. The Bathsheba incident, you know, the adultery slash really rape of Bathsheba, that's not part of what Chronicles talks about. It's a very positive take on David because there's a hope. There's a messianic hope 
And Messiah just means to anoint somebody with oil, usually like a king, or priests can be anointed as well. But to anoint someone to make them king and have this future king restore Israel to its glory days. So, Chronicles is very, very positive, too, in general about kingship. You can read the Bible, the Old Testament specifically, and come away with a very positive view of kingship and what God thinks about human government. That doesn't translate to a presidential election, mind you, but still, you can come away thinking, like, there's something good about authority and rulership, and, you know, we want someone to rule us who's going to have godly values and this and that. I get get the point. But here's the problem. Just as we have positive moments and episodes in the Bible about kingship, we also have some pretty negative ones. And that's just, again, welcome to the Bible and its diversity and sometimes its ambiguity. And the first place to go is, ironically, in 1 Samuel chapter 8. We already cited 2 Samuel 7, but this is 1 Samuel 8. And this is when Samuel, who is a prophet, is confronted by the elders of Israel. And they basically say, listen, Samuel, you've been great as a judge and as a prophet, but your sons are complete losers, and we want you to appoint for us a king to govern us just like the other nations. Which, if you remember, this is language that seems to come right out of Deuteronomy 17, you know? Set a king over us like all the nations that are around us. Right? So, it seems like we're coming to the point now where, okay, good, now it's finally going to happen. Let's have this king just like God said it was okay to do back in Deuteronomy. But, but listen to this. Now, in verse 6, But the thing displeased Samuel when they said, give us a king to govern us. As Samuel prayed to the Lord, right? The Lord said to Samuel, listen to what they tell you. Listen to the voice of the people and in all that they say to you. For they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. Hold on a second here, Yahweh. What's going on? You just said in Deuteronomy that kingship's fine and here's how you do it. But now it seems like there's this unqualified negativity about kingship in 1 Samuel 8. And look, look at Yahweh's words. They get even stronger in verse 8. Just as they have done to me from the day I brought them up out of Egypt to this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so also they are doing to you. This is like spiritual adultery. This is almost idolatry, thinking of a king. So now then, listen to their voice only you shall solemnly warn them and show them the ways of the king who shall reign over them. So, okay, fine. Give them what they want. It's a horrible idea. They're rejecting me. Give them what they want, but warn them first of what's going to happen. So, Samuel lets loose, starting in verse 10, right? He tells the people what the Lord had said. And he said, these will be the ways of the king who will reign over you. He will take your sons and appoint them to his chariots to be his horsemen, and to run before his chariot. See, if you're going to have a king, you need an army. If you need have an army, you've got to force people to fight in it. You can't say, well, who, who sort of wants to go to battle now? You have to have basically a draft, forced participation in the military. And, and he will appoint for himself, this is verse 12, commanders of thousands and commanders of fifties and some to plow his ground and to reap his harvest and to make his implements of war and the equipment of his chariots. You know, armies take, they got to eat you got to plow ground and reap harvest. You've got to make implements of war. Who's going to do that? Well, whoever the king says so. In other words, 
there's a hint here already of like enslaving his own people to make the war machine go. That's the downside. A calling is a powerful thing. It's a very strong belief that there is something bigger for you. It's about who you are and where you're going in life. You may be in college, you may be halfway through a career, but you want something different. There's a place for you at Union Presbyterian Seminary, where students are prepared for a call to ministry. At Union, you will find a diverse community. You'll find students from different denominations and professors who will listen to you and challenge you. You'll find people who help you find your own path. You'll find a school where financial realities matter. Union offers generous financial aid, and it meets you where you are with three different platforms for learning, residential, online, and hybrid. You'll find a world-class faculty who will invest in you, a community long after you graduate that supports you and equips you for service and for leadership. Safwat Marzuk, who has been on the podcast here on The Bible for All People, is a faculty at Union Presbyterian Seminary and is slated to write one of our upcoming commentaries. It's no secret, if you're a listener of the podcast, how much Pete and I have relied on our seminary education and how much that has shaped our view of the world and all of our work here at The Bible for Normal People. It's your call. Respond with Union Presbyterian Seminary. To learn more, go to upsem.edu or email admissions at upsem.edu. Did you know Fast Growing Trees is the biggest online nursery in the U.S. with more than 10,000 different kinds of plants and over 2 million happy customers in the U.S.? They have everything you could possibly want, like fruit trees, palm trees, evergreens, houseplants, and so much more. Whatever you're interested in, they have it for you. Find the perfect fit for your climate and space. Fast Growing Trees makes it easy to order online, and your plants are shipped directly to your door in one to two days. And along with that, their 30-day Alive and Thrive guarantee is amazing. They offer free plant consultation forever. We got our bushes in, and you can tell I don't know what I'm talking about because I just call them bushes, but we got them in last night. And Fast Growing Trees knows what they're called. Exactly. That's the whole point. It comes with this placard that tells you exactly what to do like you were in fifth grade, which is the exact instruction <laughs> level that I needed. And it was very easy to follow. We loved the process. This spring, they have their best deals online up to half off on select plants and other deals. And listeners to our show get an additional 15% off their first purchase when using the code NORMALPEOPLE at checkout. That's an additional 15% off at FastGrowingTrees.com using the code NORMALPEOPLE at checkout. FastGrowingTrees.com, code NORMALPEOPLE. Offer is valid for a limited time. Terms and conditions may apply. He will take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers. You got to have people working in the castle. You know, it's no castle, but in the palace, right? You don't go out to Dunkin' Donuts. You, I mean, you have to have you have to have the means by which to take care of this massive machine, which is heavy in administration and with people who have to make it all run well. And this is what the king will do, too, in verse 14. He'll take the best of your fields and vineyards and olive orchards and give them to his courtiers. He'll take the best of your stuff and give it to his guys. Why? Because he's the king and he can do that. You can't stop him. He will take your male and female slaves and the best of your cattle and donkeys and put them to his work. You don't have any rights left. The king is going to take your best stuff. He will take one-tenth of your flocks and you shall be his slaves. And now it's not just the slaves themselves who are going to be his slaves, you're going to be his slaves. And 
I can't help but look at this, take one-tenth of your flocks. Now, that's a tithe, literally, and that is supposed to go to God. And here it's sort of going to the king, and I don't think the king's going to hand it over to God. He's going to keep it. And then, look at verse 18, And in that day you will cry out because of your king, whom you have chosen for yourselves, but the Lord will not answer you in that day. This, in my opinion, is a clear allusion to the end of Exodus chapter 2, when the people cry out because of the oppression of another king, and God hears them and God springs into action to save them and to bring them, deliver them from that oppression. But now, on the day you cry out, like you did back in Egypt, because of this king, the one you've chosen for yourself, guess what the Lord's going to do? He's not going to answer you in that day. This is worse than being in Egypt. You're going to be enslaved to your own king, your own people, who you've chosen. This is the problem. God would never make you slaves, but kings will. So what happens next? Well, obviously, the people refused to listen to the voice of Samuel. They said, no, but we are determined to have a king over us so that we also may be like the other nations and that our king may govern us and go out before us and fight our battles. When Samuel had heard all the words of the people, he repeated them in the ears of the Lord. The Lord said to Samuel, listen to their voice, set a king over them. Samuel then said to the people of Israel, each of you return home. And this is the beginning of the story of Saul. Right? So, th- this, is, this is puzzle people, you know, people who read the Bible a lot and, and, and think about it. And I, I don't just mean scholars, I mean anybody that, you know, if you ask the question of the Bible, how are you on kingship, O Lord? Well, the question is hard to answer because it's sort of both ways. It depends on what you're reading. See, we move to the reign of Solomon, speaking of negativity. Solomon, as we know, starts off awesome. He is the son of David, the one who God chooses to elevate as king over his older brother. This is another one of these themes in the Old Testament where God seems to prefer the younger or youngest of brothers to have the highest status, whether it's Joseph or David or now Solomon, right? So Solomon is God's choice, according to 2 Samuel and 1 Kings, God's choice to be the next king. And we know the story of Solomon. It starts off pretty well. He's, he's wise and his wisdom is fantastic. But then you start reading in, in 1 Kings around chapter 4 and you start getting hints that something isn't going to be going right here. He has a massive administration because you have to. I mean, it's it's not evil to be a king and have administration. It's inevitable. You have to have that. But that's not going to be good for the people. See, with Solomon, you have the beginning of empire speak. You have the beginning of the people of God becoming a true, powerful political entity, not unlike the Holy Roman Empire, which I think also didn't turn out very well, if you ask me. So, here you have an administration in chapter 4. There's bureaucracy. Solomon has a growing reputation because he has a lot of stuff and he has wisdom. And, you know, later on, the whole Queen of Sheba incident where he's sort of bragging about what he's got and he enters into political alliances with her, which on one level is wise and another level, it, it probably doesn't bode well. But when you start, when you really start seeing the potential problems of even a Solomonic empire, right? The one who's mentioned in 2 Samuel 7, the son of David, who God is going to make his own son. You can't have a clearer choice. This is God's guy following David. 
And Solomon repays him, so to speak, by building this beautiful, rather opulent temple, if you ask me, that takes him seven years to build. And right after that, without missing a beat, it's a new chapter in 1 Kings, but there are no chapter numbers in antiquity. The Bible was originally copied and written. It just sort of goes right into, it took him seven years to build the temple. It took him 13 years to build the palace. And you want to talk about opulence. There are chapters of discussion of what materials were used, and it's over the top. And you just can't help but think back to Deuteronomy 17. Like, Solomon is doing the opposite. He's got a lot of stuff. Go to chapter 10 of 1 Kings, and there's gold and silver out the wazoo. There are chariots. These things, again, the Deuteronomy talks about. So, see, even, even this, the height of Israel's power, according to the biblical story, is during the reign of Solomon. This is when the borders of the land are the biggest that they ever were and ever will be again. We've hit a high water mark in kingship. What could possibly go wrong? This is the plan. It goes wrong immediately because kings aren't dependable. Even wise Solomon becomes unwise by two things. One, by foreign wives. Again, what Deuteronomy 17 says not to do. And they influence Solomon to be somewhat loose and relaxed about worshiping the gods of other nations. But also... Solomon was rather cruel. And this goes back to 1 Samuel 8. He oppresses peoples. He makes them work for him, particularly people of the north. See, he's from the south. Solomon, as David was, a tribe of Judah, right? But the north, he mistreats them. And so what happens is, this is just one of these great stories in the Bible. You have Jeroboam, who was like a leader of the north, a recognized leader, he takes a bunch of his buddies and they come and they meet with Rehoboam, Solomon's son, Solomon's dad. They come and meet with Rehoboam and they say, listen, I'm paraphrasing, your dad was sort of a jerk to us and he he overworked us. We were not treated fairly. We're asking, what are you going to do? We're going to pause for a minute here on the podcast to remind you that if you'd like to support the work we do here at The Bible for Normal People, please just head to Patreon at patreon.com front slash The Bible for Normal People. There you'll find all sorts of ways to support us for as little as a dollar a month and connect with the community there. Keep the conversation going. One group we want to recognize from that group of supporters is our producers group. They get on calls with us, send us feedback, improve the show, just help us make it what it is today. So thanks to Chris Abbott, Joshua Quay, Gwen Stratton, David Black, Linda Davis, Elisa McCarnas, Rachel Emery, Wayne Bartell, Julian Scott, Linda Irene, Phil Spawn, and Louis Schofield. We couldn't do what we do without you. Now back to the show. And so they left and said, you know, come back, I guess, tomorrow or in a couple of days. And so Solomon confers with his elders. And the elders say what elders are supposed to say very wisely. They say, listen, Solomon, you want to might listen to these people because they have a point. And if you treat them well, it's going to go so well for the monarchy. But if you don't, there's going to be a lot of trouble. And so what does Rehoboam do? He then turns to guys his own age, like his college buddies or something, and they say, no, man, you got this guy, grab him by the throat. And here's what you tell him when he comes back. Tell him, my little finger is bigger than my father's thigh, which is a euphemism. I don't think I need to spell it out, but 
Oh, maybe I do. My finger's bigger than my dad's penis. That's what he's saying. So this is sort of the macho, you know, testosterone thing of young men. And as a result, the nation splits. You know, this is, I think this is an important moment here in this story that tells us something about kingship. It's just, it's not working. It could work, I guess, Deuteronomy 17 and maybe these Psalms that we read or maybe Judges 21, 25. But practically speaking, it doesn't work because people are kings and people screw up. So what's God's attitude towards kingship? Well, you can see that, you know, in, you know, probably the entire history of Israel's kingship, which doesn't work out. There's one king who has an unqualified positive evaluation. That's Josiah. He's a 7th century southern slash Judahite king. All the rest have some problems, including David, including Solomon, and the other good king from the south, Hezekiah. He's not perfect either. You've got division and the nation divided into two parts and then the northern part carried away by the Assyrians and then later the southern carried away by the Babylonians. It's like kingship's a disaster. It is an absolute disaster. And all you have to do is think now also of the prophetic tradition in the Old Testament. This is, what are these guys doing if not critiquing a whole lot of stuff? Sometimes it's the people in general, but it's largely what the kings are doing and what the leaders are doing, sometimes the priests as well, the injustice of it all. Kingship is a mess. You, okay, you read the Bible and forget those positive verses. You just read some of this stuff in the prophets or uh, in, in the reign of Solomon and First Samuel chapter 8. You read things like that and you get the impression kingship is a horrible idea. There's no way God likes this. Okay, couple other quick points here. One, see, th- this is, again, to me, one of these sort of really interesting moments in the Bible. I read before 2 Samuel 7, where God is making this promise to David that through his son Solomon will have this forever reign. And then God says to David through Nathan, your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. But here's a sobering moment. You see, in, in Chronicles... In 1 Chronicles chapter 17, verse 14, this idea is repeated, right? Because Chronicles repeats the history, but changes it because he has a different point that he wants to make. And there, God does not say, your house, David, and your kingdom shall be made sure forever. He says, I will confirm him, the, the, the son, in not your house, David, but in my house, in my kingdom, forever. Not your kingdom, David. It's my kingdom and it's my house. It's not your house and your kingdom. This is an intentional change on the part of this writer called the Chronicler. And I find it very instructive because, see, times have changed and now you're living in the post-exilic world where Chronicles is writing, probably like in the fourth century. You know, this is, this is a, you know, a couple hundred years and more after uh, their return from Babylonian exile, and they still don't have a king on the throne. This is why Chronicles is so messianically oriented. It's yearning for a time when a king will be given. But there is a blunting of that hope here in First Chronicles 17.14, sort of for this reason. It's, what's important is not the king and the king's throne and the king's house, because this is my house and my kingdom. In other words, you may not have a king on the throne now, that was your hope before, but what you do have is me. 
you do have, it's like, this is like 1 Samuel 8. They haven't rejected you. They've rejected me. I'm their king. And it's almost as if God is reestablishing here in 1 Chronicles 17, 14, his true divine right to be a king over the people. Yeah, they'll be a king eventually. That's what they believed in Chronicles. But in the meantime, you have a king, folks. Right? I will confirm him, the descendant of David, here Solomon, but also Solomon's descendants. I will confirm him in my house and in my kingdom forever. So there is a messianic thing happening here in First Chronicles, but it's set in a very different context because who is on the throne is inconsequential. In fact, if anybody is on the throne is ultimately inconsequential to the fact that God, Yahweh, is their true king and it's his house and his kingdom. So let's conclude this little section about the Old Testament, uh, and that's this. Kingship is on the one hand something expected and something even needed, but it's also prone to corruption and it fails. And what do you do? Well, you long for a time when God will put a true, proper, holy, godly king on the throne to get this right. This is where the messianic hope springs from in the post-exilic period, really laid out pretty well in Chronicles. And as I said, I, f- I feel that this is an important moment here to, for us to grasp as Christians living in a very different political climate, that even in the Old Testament where you have God's chosen person, David, and the line of David and Solomon on the throne, it still doesn't work. So much so that God at points in time says, kingship is a rejection of my rule. So I think we should be careful. Here's my conclusion. We should be careful about how quickly we align our expectations of what our government will deliver for us and our role vis-a-vis the government that we happen to be under, whenever it is. It doesn't matter who's in the White House. Okay, so there's a messianic hope. Now let's move to the New Testament somewhat more briefly, I think. But Jesus is Messiah, but also redefines Messiah. Not so much, and well, not at all, an earthly king with power and authority in Jerusalem, but a king who, well, for one thing, doesn't even want people to know what he's doing. You know, in Mark, Jesus tells people a lot, listen, I know I just healed you and did this and that for you, but just can you keep it quiet? Because I don't want people to get word of the fact that I'm Messiah, because they're going to expect certain things from me that I'm not going to deliver. And that's called in Mark the messianic secret, scholars call it. Jesus wants to keep his messiahship a secret, not because he's not Messiah, but because there are expectations of Messiah at the time that Jesus has no interest in fulfilling. Jesus is in the process of redefining Messiah. You know, you have this wonderful uh, story as they're moving to Jerusalem during the Passion Week where the sons of Zebedee in Mark 10, they approach Jesus and they say, Hey, listen, we just have a private word with you for a second. When you come into your glory, can one of us sit on your left and right-hand side? I love Matthew's gospel in chapter 20, where it's not the sons that are saying this, it's the mother. It's like a stage mother or a soccer mom saying, can my kids make the team? I'll slip you 10 bucks. They are looking to sit at Jesus's left and right-hand side. Why are they saying that? Because they're moving to Jerusalem. That's where they're heading. Why else would they be heading other than to take over? to become king, to be declared king. He even rides into Jerusalem on a donkey, which is a kingly sign from Zechariah. But 
of course, what Jesus does is that he says, listen, first of all, I don't have the right to do that. That's with the Father. He can put you in positions of authority. But also, more importantly, you guys really don't get it, do you? We're at the end here, and you still don't understand the kind of kingdom I want to build. Or you have the Sermon on the Mount, you know, for, for Jesus, which undermines political power, both Roman and Jewish. You know, blessed are the poor, blessed are those who are persecuted, you know, blessed uh, are those who mourn, all those things. The people that are on the bottom looking up are the ones who are actually blessed. It's not power, it's meekness. That is a critique of Roman government, but it's also a critique, I feel, of Jewish uprising to take over and to establish yet another monarchy, Jewish or otherwise. So I, I see Jesus here as really undermining a, I can't say a universal hope because Jews thought all sorts of things in the first century, but a standard sort of by the script expectation that is fueled in the Old Testament itself for God to restore literally the monarchy and the kingship to the people. So their land that was promised to them through Abraham could be their land again without pagan Gentiles running the show. And of course, you know, famously in Pontius Pilate in John chapter 18, where Jesus says, my kingdom is not of this world, right? It's the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God. It's not up there, but it's down here, but it's a different kind of kingdom. It's a kingdom of connection with God and justice towards other people. It's not an economic war machine. So he says, my kingdom is not of this world. If it were, and if I wanted to, I got to have bunch of people here we could take over now, but that's not what I'm trying to do. Now, true, Jesus does say also, and this is where the ambiguity comes in, you know, give to Caesar what belongs to Caesar. He's not an anarchist. He's not denouncing all forms of government. And, and you know, we'll get to Paul in a second, but Paul as well, being a citizen, right? That's just, there's nothing wrong with that. But calling these powers into account, that's certainly what Jesus is doing. Give to Caesar what is Caesar's, gives to God what belongs to God, and what belongs to God is actually everything that belongs to Caesar anyway. See, Jesus, in my opinion, he undermined the, let's say, governmental expectations of the story of Israel and of Judaism. What Jesus says is not a blueprint for us. See, I think we still have to exercise wisdom and how we can embody what Jesus is modeling in his day how Jesus is defining the role of what we would call later the church and our responsibilities, not just by going to church and having Bible studies, but living in the world around us where real people, where there's suffering and injustice and things like that. But what Jesus is saying, you can't quote a verse and say, well, now I know what to do. It still takes wisdom. There's not a blueprint here for us because these writers of the New Testament, they're not asking our questions. They're not living in our time, in our moment, and we really need to do some hard theological work to transpose, so to speak, this biblical pattern for us and and to bring it into our own world and our own time. Uh, Paul, let's just briefly talk about Paul. Paul, you know, is very famous for declaring Jesus as Lord. As I'm sure a lot of you know, that is a rather overt political comment because Caesar is Lord and when you say Jesus is Lord, you're saying that Jesus is more Lord than Caesar is. So Caesar answers to Jesus, and that is a political statement. 
there's, uh, you know, I've, I've, this is a really interesting thing, something called the Priene Calendar Inscription. And I hope I'm pronouncing that right. I feel rather foolish because I've never actually heard it pronounced. But P-R-I-E-N-E, the Priene Calendar Inscription. It's dated to right around the time of Jesus' birth, maybe a little bit later. And it talks about Caesar, Augustus, as being of like divine or quasi-divine birth, and he is a savior of the people, meaning he protects them, and he's bringing good news for everybody. And people noticed immediately when this was found that it sounds an awful lot like, for example, how Luke describes Jesus, a divine birth, bringing good news for all, and is a savior. But again, you see, I think for, for the New Testament, and I'm here speaking of Paul specifically, where he calls Jesus Lord, there, th- this, this role of the king, of this divine king, is being redefined in the New Testament as this different kind of savior bringing a different kind of good news. See, in other words, the hope is not in the governmental structures. They're good as far as they go. They do good things. All non-totalitarian governments do good things. But Jesus is Lord and the government isn't. You know, when Paul in Romans begins, you know, to all the saints in Rome, grace and peace to you from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace and peace, those words are things that are also offered and promised by the Roman government. You know, we're going to take care of you and, and peace, literally peace from, you, you don't have to worry about invasions. We've got your back. And Paul takes that and he makes that almost into a parody and he says, well, the real thing, it's grace and peace to you from God, our Father, and from the Lord, not Caesar, but from the Lord Jesus Christ. And yet, I think Paul's language is rather stunning. Now, again, I know a lot of you are thinking right now, Romans 13.1, let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God. And those authorities that exist have been instituted by God. And this is oftentimes taken as sort of a go-to proof text that Christians need to fall in line behind a leader, usually a president. Unless you don't think the president is right or not, then you don't have to, which sort of undermines the whole point. But here, you know, my point is this, you know, I know what Paul is saying there, but I'd like to know why he's saying that in Romans and why he's not consistent. See, Paul had a little reputation for being in trouble with the empire because he wouldn't stop talking about Jesus even when they told him to. He kept going. He was under house arrest. He's not going to shut up, right? Because there's one Lord for him. So why is Paul saying this in Romans 13.1? Good question. And who knows? But I cannot take this as a once-for-all command for all time. I mean, America was founded by not doing what Paul said here. And there are times when Christians, I feel, have to stand up and have a prophetic critique or even denouncement of corrupt politics. And by corruption, I mean politics that hurts other people, that is unjust and unrighteous. Now, why Paul says this in Romans is, frankly, anybody's guess. My sense, and again, this is just my opinion that I think others share as well, that for Paul, he is not interested in sort of fomenting political rebellion at this point. But Rome is a strategic center for the spread of the gospel. And the Jews had already been kicked out of Rome and just recently brought back. So there's a history of the Roman government not liking what these Jews are doing. And don't forget 
that the Christian movement began as a Jewish movement. So they don't make a distinction between Jews who follow Jesus, who's also Jewish or not. It's just they're all Jewish. So perhaps Paul here is trying to give them a pep talk to say, listen, now is not the time to tick people off. Now is the time to work with the government to recognize that they're doing something positive here. Or, you know, maybe there are people in the Church of Rome who are huge fans of the government and he didn't want to upset them. I have no idea, frankly. But what I do know is that we cannot look to this verse and ignore so many others. There's a reason why Paul says this here, but there's also a reason why Paul doesn't act like this at various points in time. See, our true king at the end of the day is Jesus crucified and risen and not political powers. Now, again, for us, we have to bring this into our world. Again, that doesn't mean be an anarchist and live in the woods someplace in northern Canada. I'm, I'm not suggesting that, and I think that would be wrong. We, we can be a part of our world, in fact, should be a part of our world. But again, it's a matter of the attitude that we bring into it, whether we have a deeper perspective that doesn't put our full trust in human governments and expect them to deliver, let's say, grace and peace but to expect God to deliver that, and even to use us to help make that happen. That's where the prophetic critique comes in. And I'm sure you can think of names, I can think of all sorts of names who are Christians involved in politics, either directly or indirectly, who are trying to bring the gospel to bear to those around them. All right, one last point, example, and you can't not talk about this, the book of Revelation which I take, as, as many others do, as an anti-Roman polemic. It is a critique of what is called sometimes civil religion, the idea that a governmental system can claim the stamp of approval of the divine or the divine realm, so much so that to follow the government is to follow God, and to follow God is to follow the government. And I'm rather touchy about that because I hear that a lot in the rhetoric of American politics, not just recently, but really my whole life. And so, the book of Revelation is this weird book. It's an apocalyptic book with violent rhetoric and against, I think, not just the Roman government, but any government that sets itself up or promotes itself as the answer and makes promises of military and economic stability and even triumph. I think that's largely what the book of Revelation is about. Don't be fooled by this massive military economic machine that is actually very good at taking care of you, but if you bow down to it. Rather, the victorious one is the slain Lamb of God, and he is to be worshipped, not any other king. So, for, for me, the book of Revelation really is a great way to end the Bible. Not all the violent stuff, mind you, at least in my opinion, but I think it's a great way to end the Bible as a reminder to us as the church at that point moves on into what we call the early church, the second century and third century, it's a reminder never, ever, ever to make the mistake of confusing the kingdom of God with the kingdom of humans. And when we do that, we run into trouble. And who hasn't done that? And it's, it seems to be, again, I'm speaking of the American context, it's so much a part of the American political experience, at least in my lifetime, to make this grave mistake of simply equating these two as if to speak of one is to speak of the other. And maybe that's a bit of an exaggeration, but not much. All right, let's draw this to a quick close here. The Bible actually doesn't tell us what to do in terms of our attitude towards politics, but I do think it models for us something. 
We are not to, I think, disengage from the political world because it's not really abstract. The political world is very has practical implications. We can't disengage from politics because there are issues of justice and righteousness and people not being treated as full humans. And, you know, and anytime we have mistreatment of anyone, and you can talk anything from the prison systems to, you know, putting children in cages or pick whatever issue dehumanizes people, Christians need to be speaking out against that. So it's okay to be politically active. In fact, it's okay to be angry it's okay to be motivated by justice and righteousness. Don't be a jerk about it, but it's okay to be motivated by those things to really want to see change. But on the other hand, without collapsing into the lie of civil religion, of thinking that, again, speaking of the American system specifically, one of the two parties is going to be the one that gets us to the promised land. We will be disappointed every single time. So what we need, I think, again, are are Christians committed to, in our context, in our world today, this may not have been the case 20 years ago or 50 years ago. It may not be the case 20 or 50 years from now. But right now, as I see it, what I sort of get from the Bible and the way I apply that to our current moment, in my opinion, is a nonpartisan bipartisan mentality where we can rise above the politics. I think what we need is not a better politician. I think we need prophets. I think we need prophetic voices to call all political parties and all political systems into account, not just ones that are in another part of the world, but also ones uh, that are right here in our neighborhood and in our country. So independence is a good idea, at least in my opinion. And to try to apply, you know, the, the, the biblical and slash gospel vision towards the political world in which we happen to live. And, you know, as I record this, uh, who knows who's going to be listening to this and when, but we just had a rather difficult period for several weeks about the uh, confirmation of a Supreme Court justice. And, you know, regardless of where anyone might stand on that specific issue, whether to believe his accuser or not, whether to believe uh, the chief justice, the justice of the, you know, the judge who was, who was nominated and confirmed, wh- whether to believe him or not, I, I think rising above that somehow is a call for not using people's lives as political footballs to gain power, because I think that's exactly what's happening with extreme elements on either side. And to feel as Christians, I feel very strongly about this. Again, I could be wrong, but I do feel very strongly about this. For Christians to align themselves with either of these extremes and not see the balance that's needed. I'm not going to say it's sin. I don't have the right to say that. But I do think it's sub-Christian. I think it's sub-biblical. We're selling short the upheaval of the biblical story concerning government, and especially of the gospel of Jesus and Paul and the book of Revelation and what they say about the gospel and governing authorities. Okay, folks, we're going to end with that because I've been wordy again. But thank you for listening. Hope you did. Anyway, and thanks again for being a part of the Bible for Normal People and for listening to the podcast. And every time you show up and just press download or play, 
It's a privilege to, to both Jared and myself to, to have you know, conversation partners in a community that's really growing and that we think is really filling a need in a lot of people's lives. And we're, we say that with great privilege and humility that we're, we get to be a part of that too. So, all right, folks, until next time, blessings. See ya. Thank you.